All right. And I ask you, Thomas, how was the basketball game yesterday? It's great, man. <laughs> it's a great game. It was a really good game. And yeah, it's been a. There's been a lot of good series this this uh this playoff so far. They had a couple. They had a couple run. I mean, you know, they they never they never had the lead except from yeah. they got the tip off and had the lead there, and they never got it again. But um, they, a couple of times they'd come back from being like 15 down and get it up to five, and the the mm-hmm. stadium would go nuts, which is which was fun to see because you know normally when I go, I go as a as a Hawks fan, and um, <laughs> that's what I'm ask. <laughs> and it's pretty dead usually. It's pretty it's pretty quiet in there. So <laughs> it was it was it was nice to see everybody get hype, even though I was like in full Celtics gear. Um, but yeah, I was, was about to was, ask, were you, were, <laughs> which jersey were you in? Which jersey were you in? Oh, Robert Williams, and he killed it. I was so excited to see <laughs> to see him. I love him, man. Yeah, I have my, how, how I have many my Robert Celtics jerseys? Jer- how many Celtics jerseys do you have? I usually buy like two a season, based on who I've been like really wow. enjoying that season. So I've got like, yeah, I've got. I, I usually try and hit like the because usually they'll put out like two designs a season. So I'll get like yeah. the city edition and the standard, and um. Yeah. And you pick like one player for each or the same player for both yeah. or yeah one, one player for each usually yeah okay all right you know i don't have any jerseys anymore i used to have when i was a much younger lad i had a a shack jersey i had several shack jerseys uh one on the lakers and then one on miami and then i had LeBlo- lebron cleveland jersey early oh, yeah. i also had this i don't know if I, I had them still i had like the first like lebron shoes that came out Oh yeah, that was when I was like, I was like cool for like a few days in school. <laughs> Where like everyone's like, "Yo, what's big out on his feet?" And it was like the new LeBron James, because um, you know, time it was like New Balance or something. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, yeah, we went to a game. Uh, I went to two games this past year. Um, uh, saw Giannis play, uh, the Bucks nice, and Lake- yeah. Lakers play. No LeBron. It was the game right after he scored past kareem's record is what it was and then, so and then Le- he took a break he took a break and then came he, he was kind of injured took a break came back and injured the same thing he was injured with before <laughs> um and is now still playing on the hurt let hurt foot that he was out with but then mm-hmm. but solid solid Giannis play Giannis. i mean he's a beast in person it's like it's funny like there's certain players that like they can have this amazing night but they almost seem quiet, if that makes any mm-hmm. sense. I know this is not a sports yeah. podcast. I saw, I'm sorry to the non-sports fans here. But, like, I remember everybody was just like, yeah, and Giannis with a quiet 40-point game. Like, uh, <laughs> it's just like you don't realize, oh, how many times he just drives to the rack and gets fouled and makes the mm-hmm. dunk and makes the free throws. And you're like, oh, yeah, he has, like, 38 points so far. Uh, yeah. Um, and then we saw them play uh, Phoenix. <laughs> And that's when Phoenix decided to rest their entire team uh, at the very end. So we're we're watching mm. the second the, the second string team or be the starters. We have Kevin Durant, Booker, DeAndre Aiden, uh, Chris Paul all were out that game. But we got to see LeBron finally play and, and Davis play. And uh, Austin Reeves, my boy Austin Reeves. Um, but yeah, it's been basketball's been good so far. Mm-hmm. Uh this oh path. yeah, been loving the Kings Warriors series right now. Yeah, it, it's Kings Warriors been great. Um, I mean, the only one that probably wasn't great was the Nets and and the uh, the Sixers. I mean, I guess there's some six like some 76ers like drama 
in some way, but yeah, the Nets didn't didn't do too well. Um, is basketball your favorite sport, Thomas? I haven't. Well, no, oh, never, absolutely, one hundred percent. I yeah, I was I was saying it last night uh, when I was coming out. Like, I don't understand. Like, I've had people tell me, like, especially like hardcore football fans mm-hmm. are like, I don't like basketball. They score too often. And, like, it's like. <laughs> It's like if you were watching football and it's just like everyone's always in the red zone. You know, it's just like as soon as you have the ball, it's just like, all right, it, you either got to score or it's going back to the other people. I love that. Like, I don't like basketball. It's too exciting. Yeah, it's exactly. Go yeah. <laughs> it's like the people in, in the baseball who are mad about the pitch clock right now. They're just like, mm-hmm. oh, God, I can't just sit for five hours. And like someone's like, here's the thing. Watching baseball in, in, the, uh, in the stadium is is vastly different than watching baseball at home yeah. by yourself. Like, like, yeah. It's like at, on the stadium, it's a whole experience. It's a whole, like, you get to go get a hot dog, get a beer, just lounge in the sun on a, on a nice warm day if it's in the summer uh, or even the early, early fall. Like, but at home, you're just sitting, like, in your living room watching <laughs> baseball and just, it's very slow. Like, my grandfather yeah. loved watching baseball. But like I've, I've said that before, people will be like, "Do you like baseball?" And I'll be like, "Oh no, I don't. I don't really like follow anything." And then they're like, "Oh well, you know, I had these tickets for the game." I was like, "Well, you didn't say that." Yeah, oh, 100% that's different. Go that's to different. A game. <laughs> yeah, going to a game is much different. Than just like watching it at home, it's it's a vastly different experience. I mean, most things can be like that, but baseball is like a big, drastic shift from shift for me, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, but bas- yeah, basketball is just like. My mom's been watching it now because the Lakers are playing, and she knows like I I I love LeBron, and they're playing the Grizzlies right now, and and uh, it's like it's fun to kind of see like how people react to like having not watched basketball in a while on a regular basis, and just you know, how exciting it is. She was like I think the past night, she was like, "Oh man, this guy got tossed. There's a fight going on. Like Davis has <laughs> his, his lip. Like this is amazing." And like mm-hmm. and that's playoff basketball. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway. Sorry about that tangent to, to, to our film fans out there. We do like other things, <laughs> just to know. I, I've been like every time we do our banter, it feels like oh, it's just movie stuff is the thing. But uh, but yeah, yeah. Go basket- back and go go way back and listen to our our sports month. Yeah, I don't even know if that one's still up. It, it's, it's still up. It's still up. It's still up. We'll we'll do sports again at some point. I feel like or like we can always do a baseball month again. We can always do like uh. We've never done boxing. We've talked about boxing for at one point. Um, mm-hmm. So we'll you know contact us Cination Gmail or CenationPodcastGmail.com if you think we should do uh, sports movies, um, or you know DM DM us on Instagram or write us a review that says you want us to do sports movies, whatever you want to do. Um, but yeah, so this month, Tom. Well, first off, I'm Brand Sparks. And I'm Thomas Horton, and this is Cination Podcast. And this month we've been discussing the works of Kath- filmmaker Catherine Bigelow. And we, we've, we've come to the end of our main show of Catherine Bigelow. Mo- Actually our, the, our series on Catherine Bigelow moves We're doing a Patreon later in, or this week or next week um, on Argo as a kind of a comparison to uh, Bigelow's tw- zero dark 30. But today is our last day, our last episode on Bigelow herself uh, as a filmmaker. So, mm-hmm. Thomas, what have we discussed these past three episodes uh, on Catherine Bigelow? Well, it's been a really interesting and kind of unique transition we've seen because we talked about her kind of starting as someone who came out of the the visual arts world. And it's, we've kind of been able to see her slowly 
go from the loveless which as we've discussed is kind of her playing with movement within static frames within static images into a truly dynamic one you know one of the most kind of well recognized not action filmmakers but like dynamic filmmakers yeah, you know yeah, like vi visual storytellers someone mm -hmm. who who uses the camera to tell very succinct stories which is you know not not where she started uh and, and we've also discussed her kind of shirking the the mantle that people want to place on her as a as a quote-unquote female filmmaker mm -hmm. and especially in the fact that that most of her films completely center around men k19 i think the only line for uh, uh, the female role was when uh peter sarsgaard's fiance yells at him through the fence um <laughs> But but with that, I think also comes we didn't really talk about it last week, but we were starting to get into it with last week. And I think with this week, we'll absolutely see that there is is there is this eye that she turns towards masculinity that mm -hmm. that no one else really can. And I think you you immediately see that in the loveless. Um, yes, because it's this really unique. There's there's something about the loveless. It's all that almost reminds me of. Um, you know uh what's his name tom of tom of finland is that is that who I'm oh, of? the, the artist yeah. that used to do yes. the like the like gay fetish like leather yes. art um like there's something within the loveless that's like yeah the, there's something kind of uh, this homoerotic undertone to these greasers and and i don't think anyone i don't think a a, a male director at the time or, or at least not like a like a, a straight male director heterosis male yeah, yeah, director yeah, yeah. yeah would have would have given us that that vision and and that's something we did talk about when we were discussing um when we were discussing point break is this idea that for people for a while would be like oh point break is like oh it's so oh it's so homoerotic they have no idea and it's like no Catherine bigelow absolutely <laughs> knew what she was putting into that film but um but yeah. we, we really started to get into that with like the hurt locker we got into a little bit with k19 but i think the hurt locker absolutely you specifically kind of highlighted that scene when they're like punching with each other in the wrestling uh, yeah, in the wrestling. Barracks. yeah yeah and then it just gets out of control and then everybody's egos get hurt and uh and so when she, when she is making these films you know, even if she's she's saying like I don't I don't want this mantle of, of female filmmaker put on me because I don't want to make quote unquote female films, she is still making whatever she's making does have this uh, her unique viewpoint on it, and uh, yeah. it just so happens that she has a very unique viewpoint I think on on masculinity and and the role it plays specifically later in her career the role it plays in in war or the role it plays in in kind of. Uh, in, in causing people to do good things or causing people to do bad things. Yeah. No, yeah. You mentioned kind of with Loveless, like the one big, I, we referenced it in the first episode was Scorpio rising by Kenneth anger, which was this big experimental film uh, in queer cinema that came out in the sixties and was kind of big in the, the New York film scene. And she kind of, I think she kind of referenced like Andy Warhol films at that point in time as, as being big influence on her. But yeah, Loveless being this kind of, uh, moving paintings in a way and everyone says like Norman Rockwell paintings or Edward mm -hmm. Hopper paintings that can move um, and again to go back to her life of she was a sing she was a, a, a only child of a, a mom who was a librarian and a dad who was a, a manager of a paint factory so I think art and literature were present uh, 
in her household. Um, mm-hmm. And and that's when you look at every single like kind of movie, which is when you're directing, especially if you're directing something in, in kind of a factual event or even just that deals with facts in some way, you're going to read a lot. So like every type of every movie she does, especially after Widow, Widowmaker onward, K-19 onward mm-hmm. is like, oh, I read I read this book. I read these books like talking about Zero Dark Thirty today. She read The Looming Towers and and all, all these different kind of books that are kind of even Hurt Locker has the quote at the beginning, I believe, from a book that she kind of references a lot uh, in her interviews. Uh, some things I started noticing and we'll bring up here um, that we, we've we've hit on, but never hit on directly. And then when I was reading the Catherine Bigelow interviews book that I've been going through this, this uh, month, edited by Peter uh, Keough, um, someone, one of the interviews talked about, I think actually Bigelow her said, said that like talking about the Hurt Locker as um, with Jerry Renner's character, he is in a loop. He's constantly in a loop. And I began to think, oh, wait, a lot of her movies, it's characters who are either in or they're in loops and they either decide to stay in them or they somehow break out of the loop. We talked about this with Strange Days uh, where Ray finds his character is in this kind of um, this playback mode where he's constantly re- reliving his mm-hmm. memories with Juliette Lewis um, with near dark in a way it's like every night's kind of the same thing for all these vampires are in this loop of doing the same things and a character comes in and basically breaks that monotony in a way I think even today which ask Jessica Chastain's character is Maya in Zero Dark Thirty she's kind of in a loop for the entire movie mm-hmm. like she's doing the same thing over and over searching the searching for the same thing and what I find interesting too about i think maybe zero dark 30 and the hurt locker because bigelow pointed this out is that in hurt locker like most of the characters don't really change like a lot of her films there's not this big character change by the end of it there might be some sort of character moments and you reveal character in some way mm-hmm. but there's not a massive change like jeremy renner and hurt locker i mean he actually the whole thing is that he doesn't change it's kind of that, that's right. by the by the end of it um mm-hmm. so yeah it's kind of funny seeing that uh popping up and we'll probably discuss more today i think we have kind of a, a interesting one at the end of uh to see how it kind of correlates the rest of her career i think the the part to bring up here because we talked about how like k19 widowmaker felt like this transition film to what we now know of Catherine bigelow where it goes from k19 widowmaker very heavily researched like period piece war film or war type film and then it goes into Hurt Locker, and then we're now going to the next the next kind of course of this. And what I found is when she was talk, when talking about Hurt Locker in one of the interviews, she said how she liked Hurt Locker so much she wanted to like try to do more topical and relevant like issue like movies basically. And she's like, not really documentaries, but I like getting close to documentaries, like a documentary like movie, but not going fully into it. And mm-hmm. I think that's a very interesting statement to make after Hurt Locker because I think her next two films could and have been documentaries in some form or fashion is the thing. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, so after winning, the being the first one to win Best Director, also you talked about kind of the, uh, going real quick back to this, about her not being one to be classified as a female filmmaker. Anytime someone asks her that, she always talks about how like, yeah, I think everyone brings a, pers- everyone brings a different perspective to whatever they're doing. I don't really see it as a gender issue. It's like everyone brings their own experiences to a certain film and you see their perspective. It's 
it could be a woman, it could be a man, it could be it could be whatever you want to be, uh, whoever whoever you are is the thing you bring what you bring to the film. So that's what she kind of, she always pushes back on that. Uh, but yeah, but still after being the first one to win best director at the Oscars in 2010, Bigelow began eyeing her next project. It would be a story about an organized crime haven in the border zone between Paraguay, Argentina, and Brazil. The movie was called Sleeping Dogs, and it was written by Mark Boll, who who wrote uh, The Hurt Locker. So it was a reteaming of them. It was this incredibly high-profiled project or high-profile project set up at Paramount Pictures. Thomas, can you guess what movie this became based off that one line? I Is it that Oliver I've, Stone movie? No, no. I haven't seen this movie, but we I we mentioned it, I think, in episode one. It would become Triple Frontier. <gasps> Triple Frontier. Hell yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I just knew because I was thinking because she and Oliver Stone were kind of yeah. intertwined for a while. But what's that one with the masks? Savages? Savages. Yeah, with, with yeah. the with the Tara Kitch and Aaron Taylor Johnson. Aaron Johnson. And Blake yeah, that's Lively. What I was thinking. Yeah, hell yeah. So, Triple Frontier. I was just talking about Triple Frontier the other day. It might be my favorite Netflix movie. That oh, wow. <laughs> That's the one. Yeah, what else have they done? <laughs> <laughs> You're like, not the Irishman, not Mank. Oh, yeah, I forgot. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, those are of the like, we were the, discussing the, like the, the gray non, man. The, and, the, and, not, the yeah. non-prestige movies, I understand. Of their like, let's make a, a, extraction, all that kind of stuff. I think the only one that's been any good has been Triple Frontier. Okay. So let me read you this cast of what was supposed to be in this movie initially. Like, so it comes out in 2010, like summer 2010. I remember this because I was like, this is insane if they pull this off. Because it was like summer, because I was just now getting to like looking at movie news. So the first mm. person attached to this film was Tom Hanks. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, outside of Hanks, uh, there were going to be four more lead characters, as you've seen in the movie. Four more like male lead characters. Many of the rumors were suggesting the rest of the cast would be Johnny Depp, Will Smith, Leonardo DiCaprio, and Jeremy Renner. <laughs> That's insane. <laughs> Just based off box office power alone, I don't know what else at that period in time. I don't know what else has been would have been bigger. <laughs> like just by like throw Tom Cruise in the mix. That's maybe the best you could, like be, like be, as big as you can get if you like mm-hmm. switch out Renner with Tom Cruise. You the whole opposite of Mission Impossible was the thing. But yeah, I remember that being like, that's insane. At one point, I think Tom Hardy was in it. And and that movie would go through a lot of different um, variations, essentially. I think Mark Bowl has even said like the, the final movie was nothing like the script he wrote by the end of it. Um, but if you, you can probably understand this, Thomas, is that when trying to get a cast that big in terms of star power, it took a lot of negotiating was mm-hmm. the thing and the yes. movie got bogged down in negotiations so big and scheduling and scheduling and, yeah. and price and probably credit who's gonna get billed first how you do the billing mm-hmm. for those who don't know billing or can you explain it thomas for cast billing on a movie yeah, yeah, yeah. it's you know it, it just has to do with who who comes first and if you don't come first who comes last like that's you don't you just don't want to be in the middle and that's in the opening credits that's on the poster all of that each of those has to be 
figured out who's what's going to happen at the the opening credits what's going to happen at the closing credits who's going to be featuring who's going to be with who's going to be also starring like all of that stuff has to be negotiated and it's all to stroke people's egos yeah so it's yeah so it's and it's with it's even an introducing that's a big mm-hmm. one where I think kind of the big so a lot of times if you have really big stars you have to really work on deals to get them involved so like the first big one I think was the man who shot Liberty Valance where you had John Wayne and Jimmy Stewart in the same movie together and basically mm. I can't remember what the order was but basically it's like one of them got their their name listed first on the posters but other one got their name listed first in the actual movie was was mm. the idea they had the same thing again in all the president's men with Dustin Hoffman and Robert Redford is that Redford got top billing on one side of like the posters maybe. And then Hoffman got it in the movie or might be vice versa, but that's kind of how you do it. Well, when you have someone like Tom Hanks, who is a two time Oscar winner, Johnny Depp at that point, probably the biggest box office star in the world. Will Smith, probably in the top three box office stars in the world. DiCaprio, who was probably the biggest like, prestige actor working at that time and Renner who's this hot kind of newcomer basically that's a that's a massive package um to put together so it got bogged down with that so Bigelow and Mark Bowl uh, eventually and I think 2015 or, or the mid basically five to six years later five years later Bigelow would drop out of the project JC Chandler would step in the cast would switch they at one point it was supposed to be Chang Tatum and like Tom Hardy, like it was a variety of different people. Giant Epp came on, then dropped out, then came on again. It's a that's interesting uh, how it went from being that cast to a Netflix movie and the cast it had. Not so the cast well, it was, was bad. still a pretty pretty yeah, great cast, pretty great yeah. cast. But like uh, that's what blows people's minds, especially when I'm like, yeah, Oscar Isaac and Pedro Pascal were in this action movie together, and everybody's like, what? And Ben Affleck. <laughs> And Ben Affleck <laughs> and Charlie Hunnam. Yeah, at one point, Mahersha Ali was supposed to be in it as well. Like it, it was like it's Man. it's the names on that project are just insane to me. So Bigelow and Boyle uh, would move on to another project, and very much uh, kind of the first thing coming out about it at first was because no one really knew about it, it was very top secret. Thomas, it's, it's very top secret. Uh, all people knew was that it was a rip from the headline story of a black ops mission. This would eventually be a movie about the Battle of Tora Bora, which was a military engagement launched by the U.S. in December 2001 in an attempt to capture or kill Osama bin Laden. As Bigelow and Bull moved forward on this project, putting Triple Frontier on the back burner, they began to prep. They were in pre-production for the filming of Battle of Tora Bora when everything changed in May of 2011 with Operation Neptune Spear the operation that resulted in the end of the de- of a decade-long manhunt of Osama bin Laden after he was shot and killed by U.S. Navy SEALs of SEAL Team 6. Uh, Ball and Bigelow would make the decision to sell- shelve the project of <laughs> Battle of Tora Bora, thinking, like, it's kind of old news now. Like It's like it's hard to make a movie about the failed attempt to capture and kill, some, uh, kill Osama bin Laden when just a year ago or just uh, nine a year ago, we just did it. So it's hard to kind of mm-hmm. tell that story in that time. So they decided to pivot and essentially uh, they decided to use all their resources and military contacts from that project. They've been building for years on a new project and quickly began researching and developing a new movie about the manhunt and eventual killing of Osama bin Laden. Bull would soon travel to Washington, D.C. 
Pakistan and other parts of the Middle East working eight hour days, or I'm sorry, eight hour weeks. Uh, I'm sorry, 80 hour week, 80, <laughs> 80 hour weeks. I'm gonna get there. 80 hour weeks to gather firsthand accounts from people involved in the manhunt. Yeah, eight hour weeks is like that's not that much work, work at all. Yeah, Mark. no, that's that sounds like a good job. Yeah, I like that. 80 hour weeks. Uh, and the movie they would be working on would be called Forgotten Country, which would later be t- reti- retitled Zero Dark Thirty, which is a military term for 30 minutes after midnight. And they also liked the title because it evoked kind of the, the the cloak and dagger of this mission. So, Thomas, I know I kind of just said it, but what is Zero Dark Thirty about? Zero Dark Thirty follows kind of a, a almost decade long hunt for Osama bin Laden kind of personified in, in one single character named Maya, played by Jessica Chastain, who's a, an intelligence uh, officer, intelligence agent. Uh, and kind of starts in the Bush era with the Abu Ghraib style torture and and moves her kind of in this ever-changing war on terrorism into the Obama administration and all the way through kind of accomplishing her task. And mm-hmm. then and kind of her being the one to kind of champion this task when everyone else seemed to doubt it until ultimately they were able to defeat uh, and assassinate Osama bin Laden. Yeah. It's one thing I was listening. Kyle Chandler talked about when doing a press conference how, like, if you watch this movie, you can actually see the shifts in like regime changes and administration mm-hmm. changes, and how thing like you start off in this very like, which is will get will get controversy as the movie comes out. But say here's like these torture scenes early on. You get from this type stuff to like the guy who's heading most of it, Jason Clark, who winds up just being in the conference room back in DC for everything else and how everything Mm -hmm. is constantly in flux and moving, moving and evolving in some way. But yeah, but Maya played by Jessica Chastain, Jason Clark, who plays Dan Fuller, a CIA uh, intelligence officer, Maya Chastain's character, a CIA intelligence analyst, uh, Jennifer L who's Jessica Carly, a senior CIA analyst. Um, A lot. I mean, one thing I'll bring up here, Thomas, as we dive into it more, you mentioned with K-19 Widowmaker, you're kind of comparing it to Crimson Tide and how Crimson Tide worked because those like those supporting actors, those supporting players, they're like really great character actors in these smaller roles and how mm-hmm. K-19 really didn't have that. From Hurt Locker onward, Bigelow fills her cast with just amazing character actors. Like yes. top yeah. to bottom. Yeah. Like young, young, young talent and old talent. And like her casting, it just becomes impeccable from Hurt Locker onward. And here you have just the run, the run down the list. I said, I said, Chastain, Clark L, Mark Strong, Kyle Chandler, James Gandolfini, Mark Duplass, Edgar Ramirez, uh, Jeremy Strong, pre- Stephen Delane from St- Game of Thrones, Stephen Delane, uh, Jill Edgerton, Chris Pratt, young Chris, like coming off of. Parks and Rec before Chris Pratt was um, action star, uh, Callan Mulvey, uh, Frank Grillo, like just insane amount of people just like popping up for like brief roles. Like, yeah, I completely forgot Jeremy Strong was in this, which now makes <laughs> sense. That's why Jessica Chastain was like, because she was like the the oh, yeah. most outspoken person when that article came out about right. Jeremy Strong being a method actor. <laughs> <laughs> Because and like he's in this movie for a, a, a time and then just like 
is gone. Yeah, he and he and like like he and like him and like Harold Perrineau kind of like come like you'll be like okay well yeah. maybe because this also like time jumps so much you'll be like okay well maybe like none of them are in the office anymore and then like Harold Perrineau will like walk into a scene and you're like oh okay yes he's still around. <laughs> yeah, it, I wonder. I think she said no. I think it's Hurt Locker, but like. She shoots a lot of films, so you wonder. I th- I think they did say they cut a good bit out of this movie. I think it was like three and a half hours long at one point, and they cut more out of it because people ask, like, "Oh, is there going to be a director's cut?" She's like, "I don't think so," but there is a lot in there, so you just wonder if there's more of certain characters uh, popping up in there. But so yeah, she moves into kind of working on this this movie, and uh, or Bull begin begins writing this film he said the years i spent kind of talking to military military and intelligent operatives involved in counterterrorism was helpful in both projects some of the sourcing i had developed long long ago continue to be helpful for this version of the movie through their research they soon learned there were many women involved in the operations to capture bin laden with one woman being integral to the capture integral to the capture uh, even being on the ground during the night raid uh in uh, uh at the actual at the actual compound um, oh, wow. bull had heard of this young woman or a young woman who had been recruited out of college and eventually would spend her early years in the cia focusing only on bin laden uh i feel like i'm getting a lot of keywords that could pop up on certain uh listing devices there thomas I gotta be honest um <laughs> Bull would speak with several CIA operatives about the script, with several of them reading it. Uh, one being that they removed a scene where a drunk CIA officer fires an AK-47 into the air from a rooftop. Uh, furthermore, they removed the use of dogs from the torture scenes, is what it was. Uh, the script was initially sent to Jessica Chastain after Bigelow saw her in an early cut of Coriolanus, which was directed by her friend and uh, actor, uh, Ray Fiennes. Um but apparently, I don't know how true this is, uh, uh, her agents declined the movie. And I'm not sure if Chastain was told about it or her agents just mm. declined it. Um, mm. Megan Ellison, one of the film's producers and owner of Annapurna, who, who helped finance this movie, had worked with Chastain on Lawless, and she gave Bigelow's number to Chastain. And later on, Bigelow would offer the part of Maya over the phone to Chastain. I think Chastain said it was a voicemail or something. And so I want to bring this in the context because it's 2012. Jessica Chastain is way bigger now than she was a decade ago. Mm-hmm. Now she's an Oscar winning actress. She's currently on Broadway again, but Chastain in 2012, even though she'd been nominated for an Oscar the year before in the help, I think zero dark 30 was her really big coming out party yeah i think it was for me it was i mean obviously you can't say this is for all of america but uh, it was tree of life for me was like i was watching tree of life and i was like oh my god who is this like and that's also kind of the way that tree of life like sets up her character and like basically makes her an angel and you're just like who is this like ethereal person (laughs) but um but but yeah, this was this was the immediately like after Tree of Life, and I feel like that one with like Helen Mirren was around let, this let, time. Let me, let, me, well. let me read off her her slate okay. of films. So the first time I ever saw her was in The Debt. That's where she plays a young Helen Mirren. Yes, that was in 2010. Yeah. Um, 2011 is when like 
basically all these movies she'd been working on for years finally decide to come out is what kind of feels like so she has take shelter in 2011 mm-hmm. Coriolanus in 2011 the tree of life in 2011 uh wild uh, Sal- uh salome which was like a al pacino docudrama she's in that's 2011 texas killing fields her sam worthington jeffrey dean morgan chloe grace moretz that's 2011 and then the help that's 2011 which she gets nominated for an oscar best supporting actress in that role and then 2012 wow. it's lawless um a movie called the color of time and zero dark 30 damn but but 2012 that, that's where like 2012 2011 this very big year of a lot of movies that the help is big and I think a lot of people in America that's like that's where they first may saw her. But I think if you're just watching in terms of mainstream kind of film, because both Zero Dark Thirty and The Help are big films in terms of box office, if you watch The Help and then a year later watch Zero Dark Thirty, that's an incredible range from an actress. Yes. It's wild. So if you're watching that, you're like, who is this person and how is she just over here? Who's this very com- this very interesting and complex character in The Help to this very interesting complex character in Zero Dark Thirty and two very different forms like uh, of characters basically, mm-hmm. and that's just insane. So that's why I say it's her big coming out party, and that's where she gets her second Oscar nomination back to back. This now this time for lead actor. Spoiler alert: lead actress for this uh, for later on for reception. So yeah, so she's in a very interesting part place in her career right now um in 2012 she's this young actress on the rise and so with that let's talk about kind of favorite scenes in this movie thomas uh favorite scenes favorite kind of moments yeah i was like favorite feels a little weird to throw out here yeah i I know you know well done (laughs) well i was about to say well executed but i feel like yeah that last scene right well execute there we go um hoorah um first off i have to i have to preface by saying i'm a well-stated character actor lover i've said it many times yes on this show uh one of those character actors that i absolutely love is jason clark don't know why i don't know why anytime i see jason clark in a movie i'm like hell yeah let's go uh, and I will I will always continue to sing the praises of the uh, Jason Clark Everest movie, um, which oh, not yeah. enough people saw when it came out. So good. But I don't know. I, I, I really I think he's great in this. And I, I, I really I think the intro to him is so mm-hmm. interesting, you know, because you get her at first. You don't even know that she's in there because they've kind of got her in this in this mask. Yeah. Yeah. We just bring her right in to this. um bring her right into a torture situation and 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 clark is like too good at it you know he's he's mm-hmm. he's too comfortable in doing it and that's that is almost the most kind of jarring part yes. of, of seeing this torture go down is not what they're doing to this man but how casually they're doing it and then to kind of come out and see her that's the first time we see her right as she pulls that mask off and and is very obviously kind of shaken by by what's what she's seen and and he's trying to like talk her down like it's nothing and and i just think i think his character is is so interesting in this movie and there are 
you know, kind of speaking to this this movie and speaking to both scripts, there are little character arcs to the mm-hmm. to, to people other than her. And 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 one of the things it's very simple, but one of the things I just love is what they do with his hair <laughs> in this movie. Because <laughs> when he's on the base and he and he's like doing all this like torture and interrogation, it's his hair is like so wild. And then the first time we see him at like Langley. And it's like slick back. Yep. Like, oh man, this this guy's changed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's like that thing is like this guy went from being like in the field, like really in it, to like I'm the guy. I'm a, I'm an office. I'm a, like an office job. Yeah. What and is. I do really like. I think he's really solid in that scene with the monkey. Um, oh my when, gosh! I wrote that down. <laughs> well, the scene, the first both, one when they when scenes, they steal both, his yeah. when they steal his ice cream cone, but then in the scene too, and he's like fed up with it all. And I mean, he, he's someone that you've seen be not scar you know obviously all these guys in the military we just covered this and yeah in hurt locker obviously they're good at covering up you know how hard this is on them but when he's just like i think i want to go try being a normal person for a little while and then they kind of cut out and you can see that the cage is empty and he's like man they took my damn monkeys thank you they killed my monkeys is what they say and i'm like Oh my god, this guy's so heartbroken. It's like it's the one <laughs> it's like the one thing that kept him sane. Yeah. Like you you watch this guy who's like literally tortured people and he's like, Man, they killed my monkeys. Like he's just mm-hmm. like so upset. And, and he's I'm just like, like, This is my this is the monkeys were his last opportunity. He's gotta get out of there while he has like any piece of a soul left. And and yeah, and but he even to jump really far ahead, but like he's kind of always like with her for most of the time. Mm-hmm. And there's that really key moment when they're in that conference room and they're asking like, what's everybody's like thoughts on this. And they go to him and he's just like, yeah, I'm not sure type thing. Like I'm like mm-hmm. 60% and it's kind of like mm-hmm. maybe even less. It's like, she's like shocked by it. Cause like she thought he would be the one that really like backs her or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's but also yeah. you know, like, like, Stephen Delane has like a, a, a line. You know, there's a couple of times where where they're kind of like, you know, this is the way things are done now in the Obama administration. But I do yeah. think it it permeates. It it's it's really without hitting you over the head with it. It's like okay, we're not cowboys anymore. We can't fly off half cocked. Yeah, we got to do things differently now. And and I think Stephen Delane's kind of character represents that really well. But yeah, we can go back. I, I just yeah. we just I just took us through all of Jason Clark's journey in this movie, but that's that's to say, uh, I'm really happy he's in this movie. Yeah, no, 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 I agree. Um, because you, you have these character actors, but we we kind of ping pong back and forth with these. But like, you have these character actors who come in for a time and then just go away. It's like mm-hmm. Kyle Chandler's there for yeah. a good bit and then just he's gone. Like yeah. the the moment when like Chandler and Chastain have their big like. Or she has her big blow up in front of or to Chandler when she's pissed about him not like doing stuff, basically. Because basically mm-hmm. a lot of times Chastain's not a lot of them, but Chastain's just like pissed at everyone not listening to her is kind of the thing. Like it's that it's Chandler first and it's Mark Strong later is what happens. Um but yeah, when she blows up on on Chandler, I thought that was great, is the thing. Um because yeah. she talked about how when kind of and kind of like prep for this role we're looking at she's like she goes maya is a character that's unemotional and as an actor you're taught to be emotional and be open mm-hmm. and everything so she was very difficult to play a character who's like the opposite of what you're taught to be so you have right. those moments that when actually the emotion comes out it's it's really impactful is the thing mm-hmm 
that moment being key. Um, again, I'm going to bring this up here is what I find fascinating because I wrote this down. A lot of Bigelow's movies don't really start until 45 minutes to an hour into it. You know <laughs> That's I mean? when they, they kind of start to realize that this one guy they're tracking yeah. is related to Bin Laden. Yeah, that's where the kinda, it kind of it kind of comes in like, oh, that's this is where this happens. But like, I noticed we start we talked about with Strange Days was the big key, but like I'm seeing it more and more now is that a lot of her movies, she spends a lot of time either building the world or building the character and not letting what we call plot interfere with that. Mm-hmm. And she does it here too, where she's really building out Chastain, Maya's character and kind of the, the, the world that she's kind of learning. Cause I think at one point I read, and I don't know if this is true that basically when she comes in at the very beginning with Jason Clark in that torture scene, she's almost fresh out of, like, out of school basically. Yeah. Like, yeah, like yeah. that's what it is. Like she's literally this is her kind of first infield experience. Yeah, you definitely this. get that impression. And so we watch her kind of again, I don't think she changes much, but you watch her learn the world more. I think she's mm-hmm. always kind of the same character a lot. Maybe not, but like I just I think a lot of times she's kind of the same character. She has a goal and she's so focused on that goal. She's not really changing. It's it's not you don't see a lot of personal life of Maya in this movie. It's very yeah, much yeah. it's work oriented the entire time. Yeah. And and you know, it's it's a lot like James with Hurt Locker. He she's carrying the weight of everything that she's yes. experienced and all the people she's lost, but but it is of the utmost importance. It's a matter of life and death for her to not show yeah. that that she's carrying that weight and that's you know, that's what we get with that that last scene on the on the plane is is it's finally no longer a matter of life and death for her Mm -hmm. to keep that inside and she has you know just a minute of of freedom to let that show so so yeah almost all the character growth that we get from her in this movie is is smarts yeah um you know i think i think one thing they do really well is she's very concerned early on about uh you know going in the letting the the prisoners kind of see her hair especially someone like a a white woman with red hair is something Mm -hmm. that really stands out in uh in the middle east and and then we we see you know by like halfway through the movie she's got her kind of wig collection or she's coming back to her apartment and she's just kind of um you know wearing a a headscarf while she's out and about like it's just that kind of of her adapting yep that that we we see just kind of very subtly throughout that shows us even if we're not getting a lot of emotional growth in this movie we're getting mental growth you know yeah like the only time that we get like a kind of personal thing this is talking about character arcs is her and jennifer l uh Mm -hmm. is that is that how you pronounce her name look at that jennifer illy um that kind of like that kind of relationship where they like kind of become friends and that's kind of the only personal stuff. Even even after Jennifer uh, Illy's like essentially death, uh, she the only photo she kind of has is of her and Jennifer Illy together. Is the mm-hmm. thing like that's kind of her closest thing. And and speaking of that character of of Jessica, like that arc is just like kind of heartbreaking. We're like, oh yeah, she, she's like thinks she's found something good. We're like one step closer to Bin Laden. And she lets her guard down, essentially, is what it is. Like, 
I think that's something that, and I think Maya learns later on is like, because of seeing what happens to Jessica, Maya never really lets her guard down with anything. And Jessica's mm-hmm. character lets her guard down with like letting, not doing certain protocols and letting the, the other person uh, uh, um, that could be a traitor or could be a, a double agent or whatever, a triple agent in this case, um, letting them call the shots. Like, cause she wants that. They're so obsessed with like wanting to, to capture and find bin Laden that they'll, they'll compromise on certain things. And I think Maya is someone who she does not like compromising after this. No. Like she loves, she wants it full force and she, and she's someone who does not sugarcoat it. She will tell you straight. And she's someone where I could, I, she never says it, but I could see her being like, I'll bet my whole career on this. Like that's a line I keep mm-hmm. hearing every time she just, like, once she makes a decision, she's very, she's very confident in the decision she's making. Like she's thought yeah. long and hard. She's not guessing yeah. most of the time. Um, but she'll put like, like two scenes. I love just like, there's two scenes with her when she, when she has to go to like, cause she gets kind of basically her covers kind of blown. I think her covers blown. So she has to go back to Langley and go back to mm-hmm. CIA and work from there. And the two scenes were like, she gets brought in when she, they believe they found the compound where bin Laden is. And mm-hmm. she's standing in there and it's like Gandolfini, who's a CIA director, all these people are coming in and Gandolfini's like, who's this? And she's like, I'm the motherfucker who found this place. And I was like, <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, that's a cold line. Like to, mm-hmm. to like the cockiness to be like, I, I, I'm, I'm the, I'm the person who found this place. Mm-hmm. No, none of these other dudes are taking crap for this. This is me, but it, no one else. It, it, but it's also, you know, that's what we're, we're talking about when we talk about how much of the the kind of character growth in this is is mental. Is is like yeah. that is how she's learned that she has to compose herself in this world, or she's not going to be listened to. She yeah. spent so many years not being listened to that she's learned she's got to be loud, and that's where you get the the um, the numbers on uh, what what's Mark percentage? Frost's yeah, what's the on, 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 on on well the the white the dry oh, yeah, erase yeah, markers oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. on Mark Frost's. Uh, window well, like how many days till like we found that we found the the compound but no one's doing anything and it gets like mm-hmm. to over a hundred and she just starts doing it every day and just like staring him down as she's doing it and what's so funny is that we kind of seems like mark strong actually trying to do stuff for it but just mm-hmm. he's not telling her yeah oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> like he's trying to do everything she's saying but he's just like no, no there's no headway I think that's great. That's that's the great thing about these little supporting actors in this in this movie is they all get these little they all get these little storylines. You know, yeah. Kyle Chandler. It's he he's the company man who toasts the line and then he gets thrown under the bus anyway. Yeah, he's scapegoat. Uh, yeah, and then and then with with Mark Strong, yeah, you get this like he he doesn't want to show her that she's rubbing off on him, but but he is. He's going he's going to battle. He's going to bat for her like every day. And then he has to come back and like sit there in silence and take her like, indignant <laughs> stares. And then when they have the big conference meeting, he's the one that says like the highest percentage of they mm-hmm. think Bin Laden. Everyone else is like, oh, I think it's like maybe sixty percent, maybe fifty. And he's like, based on our intel, based on their work, I think it's like eighty percent. And then she just goes, hundred percent. I don't know what to say mm-hmm. it. But hundred percent, okay, ninety nine. Since you guys hate uncertain, or you guys hate certainty, <laughs> but it's really a hundred. <laughs> like she's so good, she's so like Chastain is, I just think incredible in every role she does. Like mm-hmm. I, she's one of those actresses that 
even if the movie's so-so or whatever, she, she, I don't think she's, and anything I've seen, someone else might say a few other movies, but anything I've seen, I never see her taking a day off. Mm-hmm. It's the amount of prep, the amount of choices that she makes, that it's it's just incredible to watch every time. Yep. Every time. And to see also too in this moment who's someone who is still so fresh in film acting, just the utter confidence and res- confidence and resilience that she has in this in this period is just astounding to see. Mm-hmm. Um so again, this movie's actually bro- broken up into several parts, is the thing. And a good chunk of this movie, not a lot, but like I'd say about like a half hour of this movie or more, probably 45 minutes is this the whole like leading up to the actual raid mm-hmm. and the raid. So I guess let's talk about the raid. Let me tell you the first thing I thought of during the raid. Oh, that's a strange days. Yeah. The POV shots of to the cameras. Oh, this is strange. Days. Yeah, and also a little bit of the 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 raid in uh, Point Break. In Point Break, which also there's a, there's that opening um, uh, shot in Blue Steel when Jamie Lee Curtis is doing her like uh, um, exercise the apartment. Yeah, 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 like it's like it's wild to see these, and because point of view is very big. There's even point of view shots in Hurt Locker as well. Point of view. We talk about perspective with Bigelow she even puts it into her films of this, of these point of view shots that really bring you into this world and bring you into the character's mindset. And with here, it's done, it's done incredibly well with this, with this raid sequence. What I found interesting, Thomas, let me ask you this. What's the climax of this movie? Uh, I, it, I think the climax is her getting the team is her getting the approval to get okay. the team to go in. Well, what, what, what I think it's, it's like, it's the rate why I find why, why I wrote down. Cause we talked about thing previously, how like it's not great to have your climax or your, your, your protagonist sit out of the climax. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that you have this big raid and Chastain's character is involved, but not involved, mm-hmm. but it shows you that you have to have all that stuff with Chastain for the, I guess the ending stuff to make like, to, to really like land with the raid is because yeah, you've I mean, seen I, all the building blocks to get here. So she's yeah. not there, but is there is the thing. Yeah, 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 exactly. It, I mean, I think she puts it perfectly when, when she is kind of addressing the seal team six and yeah. she says, I found Osama bin Laden and you're going to go get him for me. Yeah. Like this, this is all her doing. And these are her pawns. Mm-hmm. going in to do her bidding and I, I think that's that kind of moment is the story climax for her that is her at you know that's that's this this moment without Catherine Bigelow probably wouldn't like it if we if we gendered it too much but you know to have her be this be the only woman in this hangar and all these SEAL team macho men are coming in and they're like what are we doing and Jason Clark just turns and hands it off to her and and she just commands the room and is able to say with her 100% certainty yeah. you are all going in to kill Osama bin Laden tonight that is her story climax but then her emotional mm. climax doesn't come until, until after yeah. until after the assassination which is why i think it makes the raid work because you're still holding for that 
you know, from a, from a certain storytelling point of view, because we've talked about some movies before, it's like, it's like Zodiac, you know, yeah. with Zodiac, there is no resolution, but we know that, that our main character knows that he's right. He's finally not puzzled anymore. Yeah. He, kn- he knows that he's right. That's what we have in that moment of her addressing them before they go in in some version of the world somebody ends the movie there and and it mm-hmm. and it's fine because we know and we we know for a fact because it's a real story like we you could you could have the helicopter flying off and her standing there and we know that she's accomplished her goal mm-hmm. and she's did what she set out to do and and her journey is is through but because they hold off on that emotional climax until afterwards i think that keeps us holding on and then obviously because also Catherine bigelow stages a very exciting sequence yeah there as well i mean the sequence is incredible without with what she does like and we'll 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 dive into kind of production design elements of it as well but like just what they build out and everything is is incredible um but yeah the, the alone moment at the end on the uh on the plane ride back where we're chastain for the first time where Maya is the first time she is alone in her thoughts and the thought she's had for 10 years is now done. What mm-hmm. do you do? <laughs> and that's your <laughs> end. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like spoiler let's talk. You haven't seen zero dark 30, but like it's, 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 if you watch it, you'll get it. Cause like it builds this moment of you've watched this character as I said earlier, in this loop, the entire movie, yeah, same thing every no day. No life except for this. Absolutely zero life except for the pursuit of Osama bin Laden. Yeah. Period. And now this this loop has been broken. And what do you do next? Okay, so how do you know it's bin Laden? Because the truth is, we've been on this op before. It was 07, and it wasn't bin Laden. And we lost a couple of guys. Totally understand. Bin Laden uses a courier to interact with the outside world. By locating the courier, we've located Bin Laden. That's really the intel. That's it. Quite frankly, I didn't even want to use you guys. With your dip and your Velcro and all your gear bullshit, I wanted to drop a bomb. But people didn't believe in this lead enough to drop a bomb. So they're using you guys as canaries in the theory that if Bin Laden isn't there, you can sneak away and no one will be the wiser. Hmm. But Bin Laden is there. And you're going to kill him for me. So in terms of onset life, I'm going to jump around here, but basically determined not to shoot on sound stages. Bigelow sh- shoot took place on three continents. Uh, they, they shot, I think in Poland, I, th- I believe at one point for a scene. And I think they actually got, got controversial there from people in, from the, the city in Poland because they used it for CIA, like cloak and dagger type stuff. We don't want this to represent our country or the city. Um, they shot a lot in like India is what it was for a lot of the big uh, Middle Eastern scenes, Jordan as well. Uh, so they, so they had three continents involved m- s- many night shoot night vision shoots and shots 120 speaking parts and they built an exact replica of bin laden's compound so they built the compound in jordan and it was based on what they could learn from diagrams and reporting about the building where the cia's pursuit ended now again mm. you have to put in perspective this happens in may 2011 this is being shot let me get the actual date. Um, probably, if I had to guess, fall into early two thousand, fall of two thousand eleven into early two thousand twelve. Wow, 
this this was the first one that i remember being like, i mean there were some like 9-11 movies that came out and i was like oh, do we really need do we really need a 9-11 movie but this was the first one they were like they're making a movie about assassinating bin laden i was like what? that just happened like, what? <laughs> Here, let me find the exact date of when it started because they had that on imdb real quick but yeah it's a it's a very fast turnaround um because we'll get into kind of controversy later because it was supposed to be released a little bit earlier than what it ended up being released at um yes yeah, so it starts it started shooting march 5th 2012 because i remember she said that the day they were shooting the compound scenes was like the year anniversary of when bin laden was killed wow that's how fast of the turnaround it was so they had to build this compound in jordan the production designer jeremy hendel who had never made a feature film before <laughs> as a production designer was responsible for making the building as real as possible. The center blocks with which the building was made, for example, were distressed. They didn't, they didn't look new. Um, also in terms of research and they had the, the appearance of the actual stealth helicopters used on the Bin Laden raid is still highly classified. So Hendel and his team had to take the single image of the helicopter that crashed in Pakistan at the mm. at the at the uh, at the compound, and use that as their reference to build <laughs> this full aircraft, basically. I mean, they they created full size practical mockups as well as CGI models of copters. Several consultants who had seen the actual helicopters commented that the mockups were pretty close to the actual thing. Wow! And talk in terms about talking about the movie, uh, Bigelow said it was by far exponentially more complicated than anything i'd done before even the hurt locker which i thought was a very difficult which i thought was very difficult at the time in terms of chastain in terms of stuff she did on, on like in terms of during shooting chastain took all the photos from the suspects every day after work and put them on her wall in her hotel or whatever because she thought maya would do the same thing so she lived with these pictures of these possible suspects that she's chasing um every day uh, the controversial scenes which depict the use of torture, including kind of the waterboarding and kind of the early, very early on in the film, sparked a lot of debate later on when it was released. Uh, Bigelow stated, as a human being, I wanted to cover my eyes, but as a filmmaker, I felt a responsibility to document and bear witness. I think in a way it's a compliment to the film to stimulate such a vital conversation. It's only disappointing when the film is mischaracterized. Yeah, I remember this being a huge, I mean, and and, and it's hard to remember how less politicized the world was at this point or the country at least yeah but it was such a huge deal that they were working with the obama administration to like get information on what went down and and fox news was like this is gonna be all oh, it's gonna be anti-torture it's gonna be pro-obama they're gonna claim that the obama administration had everything to do with this yeah and that the torture didn't help at all and then it came out and i remember watching it and being like eh. <laughs> It's not exactly like anti-torture. <laughs> you know, it takes yeah. a very pragmatic view of torture, I think. Yeah, that's I'll bring that up later in terms of because this is, I think, probably her most controversial film uh, due to that and several other things. Uh, mm. In terms of shooting, uh, they shot a digital footage equivalent of 1.8 million feet of film. Wow. Um Co-editor William Goldenberg estimated that an eighth of the total footage was on the climactic assault of Osama bin Laden's compound. The raid, wow. the raid was shot at least twice in full, 
one on a normal moonlight illuminated compound and one on another night vision mode. Um, in terms of just a funny story from set or kind of in the prepping or kind of filmmaking or film production of this, uh, Gandalf Annie sent a note to Leon Panetti before the film came out. And I guess he Panetti was the head of the CIA and Gandalf Annie wrote, I'm very sorry about everything. I apologize. You're like my father. So you'll find something to be angry about, but please let me know. Months <laughs> later, as the film was in the middle of award season, early January, screenwriter Mark Bowl told Gandolfini, Leon Panetti would like your phone number because he doesn't know how to get in touch with you. And Gandolfini replied, he's the head of the CIA. He can't find me. Come on. Really? <laughs> <laughs> and that moves in kind of the reception of the film. So the controversy that kind of came out, the movie was initially at one point being talked about to be released in like October. Now what was happening in, in, in the fall of 2012, Thomas elections, there was an election and people on the right were saying all things you're saying, this is going to, this is going to try to sway the vote. It's going to try to sway for Obama. So the Obama was so involved in this and all these different things. So basically Sony who decided to distribute the film, it was not produced through Sony. It was produced through Annapurn. It was independent. It was a technically independent film, uh, financed independently. And Sony decided to hold release for the film. Uh, they would not release it until, uh, in the U S until December or basically yeah, December 10th, I guess was the premiere December 19th was when it, when it was like limited release and it didn't go nationwide till I think mid January is what it was. Wow. Um, January 11th is what it was. Yeah. So only in five theaters till it's, they were trying to get as far away from the election as possible. So leading up to it, the right was very upset by this movie before it came out. Thought it was some of the stuff you said, and it came out and the whole thing switched and it went the other way and the <laughs> left became incredibly upset with it to put terms in that way. A lot of people on the left were upset with saying it was pro torture, saying it was uh, uh, show, showing things that basically shouldn't like basically because it shows that they torture people. They got information. I think people will think that torture is a good thing to get information from mm -hmm. pro torture. Um, there were even like boycotts by certain people in the Academy. It was announced when it was nominated for Oscars, uh, that award season, um, several, not several countless articles came out, uh, from people. I think even kind of certain U S senators, John McCain, Diane Feinstein, began casting letters to like Sony for like, we, you guys need to write an apology. Like you're perpetrating the myth that torture is effective. Even the CIA's acting director at the time wrote a letter saying that the, this is the letter they put it take zero doc 30 takes significant artistic license while portraying itself as being historically accurate. The film creates the strong impression that the enhanced interrogation techniques, torture that were part of our former detention and interrogation program were the key to finding Assad bin Laden. That, that impression is false. The truth is that multiple streams of intelligence led CIA analysts to conclude that Bin Laden was hiding in uh, Abbottabad. Mm -hmm. uh, bad. Some came from detainees subject to enhanced techniques, but there are many other sources as well. So basically, they're trying to say, this is all bullshit, is what they're trying to say. <laughs> um, but someone put it, uh, some people put it this way, saying that uh, 
uh, Spencer Ackerman said the film does not present torture as a silver bullet that led to bin Laden. It presents torture as an ignorant alternative to that silver bullet. Mm. Some people mm-hmm. view it as another thing. Filmmaker, filmmaker Michael Moore later said, I left the movie thinking it made an incredible statement against torture. So it's up in the air of yep. what it was trying to be. But I think, again, Bigelow is always trying to observe and I think some people felt that because she was just observing, observing in her eyes is the term I'm using, she was making a stance for it. Mm-hmm. But again, go back to that earlier quote. She's like, I, I wanted to shield my eyes, but it felt like we need to do this to create this conversation. And it most certainly yeah. created a conversation. <clears throat> is the yeah, thing. I think it is. Yeah, I I ultimately i've got a lot of respect i think for the way it is presented and that it's not it's not like rah rah let's go torture people but but in 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 the same way they're not they're not sitting there like pretending it didn't happen like it happened and it was part of the process unfortunately um and you know i think there i think we obviously see we talked about jason clark's kind of little kind of character arc we obviously see that it's not a good thing for anybody. We see yeah. men degraded and dehumanized, and and we mm-hmm. see the negative si- the effects, psychological effects it has on the men who are kind of made to perpetrate it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, no one comes out and says like, "Oh, hey, we shouldn't torture," but you know that's not that's not what that's not what they're here for. Yeah. <laughs> this one necessarily, and I mean, I I feel like the I feel like Hurt Locker is the same way. You know, there there is no moment in hurt locker where they're like oh i can't believe the american military complex made this poor man leave his family and go back in like that's you can draw that conclusion from it but the movie itself isn't saying that you know no i agree um but yeah a lot of country one more controversy i want to bring up too uh dealt with the objection to the use of uh recordings of 9-11 victims I don't. I don't love the beginning. Yeah, I don't love I the don't, beginning either. I don't think it's needed. It's, don't think it's needed. Nope. Don't think it's nope. needed at all. I and yeah, and it and it, that is the only part of the movie that feels sensationalist to me. Yes, it, it feels it feels manipulative and it feels sensationalist. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Basically, several families came out asking for an apology, um, from the filmmakers and distributors for using, um their family's voice in in that opening section uh there was one family they used like a a voicemail from a flight attendant that was on one of the hijacked planes um they used uh uh i think one uh, one one the 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 two people who were in um a a, a guy who was in the one of the towers basically was Mm -hmm. used and and the thing about Bigelow and Bull, because like this is what came out later, because there was a, there was an actual investigation that went into saying, did CIA give these filmmakers too much information regarding what was happening uh, in these programs and during mm-hmm. this operation? Now, what Bull and Bigelow did, I think, were very journalistic in how they found everything and how yes they found everything correctly and this is both in the in the in the cia stuff the torture stuff and these 9-11 victim stuff like one of the big things why that that investigation investigation was thrown out is that they could cite where 
a certain person said this publicly in an open space at a conference and didn't realize that Mark Bull was there and he wrote it down and put that in the movie. Like it's things like that. But the 9-11 victim stuff they had found in the 9-11 commission report is what it was with certain things. And they used it from that because it was, I guess, public record is the thing. So it's, it's, <laughs> it's a little, yeah, that's the, at the beginning. Cause I think Ebert pointed out saying that, that he, he hated the opening of it. Mm-hmm. And I kind of agree with that. I don't think, I don't think it was necessary. And I think it, it's trying to add I know it's trying to add to it. I don't think it needed it. I, I think it's trying to add context, but it, like I don't know that like September eleventh is one of those things I don't think is ever gonna be taken out of context. You know, it's it's yeah. like Yeah. Uh, I don't think we need like the world as it is now kind of thing. And 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 we can talk about this a little bit uh, on our next movie as yeah. to whether this little prologue to drop us into the world is is necessary or not. Uh, yep. We'll, we'll get <laughs> we'll get into that because I'll, I'll quickly tie this up. So it was nominated for, I believe, let me get the amount of Oscars it was nominated for. For one, it was a box office success. Um, it made $132 million at the box office. It was nominated for five Oscars. Bigelow was not nominated for best director, however. Um, but Chastain was nominated for uh, best actress. It was nominated for best original screenplay. And it was nominated for um, best sound editing, best film editing. Let me read off your top, your your best picture nominees for this year, Thomas. Um, Argo, which we're going to talk about on the Patreon, is kind of a comparison piece. Uh, mm. Amour, Beast of the Southern Wild, Django Unchained, Les Miserables, Les Mis, uh, Life of Pi, Lincoln, <laughs> Silver Lang's Playbook, and Zero Dark Thirty. So what I wrote down is, is 2012 kind of a a benchmark for like the uh like as the end of cinema as we knew it for a time? <laughs> um, yeah, I think so. Because when you watch again, it's like it's like one of the notes like oh like if you watch Zero Dark Thirty like. There's so many people who ended up being in superhero movies afterwards. Well, when did was, Avengers came out in what? 2012. 2012. Yes. Yeah. I look at that as like the benchmark. Like that's where everything shifts is the thing. Like in a post, because I wrote it down when it was do, when it was about to start the raid and you're seeing Chris Pratt and Jill Egerton in very small roles. And I was like, do you get this nowadays? Do you get mm-hmm. like pretty big actors just to pop up? I mean, they weren't big, but they were still known at that time to pop up in the last 30 minutes of your movie and their, their faces are covered for most of it. You know what I mean? It's uh, that's one thing, but like, yeah, I was Mike Coulter wa- somewhere in yeah, there. Yeah. It's wild. <laughs> uh, Frank Grillo's barely in there, but he's there. Mm-hmm. But I was, it's the same when the, when the helicopter's going up and Chastain's like, wait, like watching it go up. I was just like, does this movie make $130 million at the box office nowadays? <laughs> Do they actually put money into something no, like this? this? the my my thought i had at, at some point during this movie was uh this would be an hbo series yeah it would you, be you would not if you went yeah. and pitched this anywhere today they'd say yeah theatrical movie this is a this is a six Show. episode miniseries yeah um for better or for worse but yeah it's probably just, for worse but, but yeah but, i i just thought i was like is this kind of the end i also wrote like i wonder how many lines just chris pratt ad-libbed in this entire movie because the whole like Tony <laughs> Robbins bit. I was like, this just feels like Chris <laughs> Pratt is just doing Chris Pratt stuff at this point in time. Um, so yeah. So after that, 
It's a box office success. I think it actually is her biggest box office success so far in her career. Zero Dark Thirty, more than Point Break and everything. Um, so we move on. Bigelow decides to tackle another real life story next. She begins to reteam with Mark Bowl again, and they want to do a movie about the 1967 Detroit riots. And Bigelow said she was inspired to research and work on this project after the killing of Michael Brown by a Ferguson, Missouri police officer in 2014 and the unrest and protests that followed. This movie would be called Detroit. And so, Thomas, what is Detroit about? Uh, it's about a, an incident within the Detroit riots in which uh, some white police officers responded to reports of a shooting at a motel and proceeded to spend the night terrorizing the the black patrons uh of the motel which eventually led to them killing three of them mm-hmm. uh and then kind of the the legal fallout of of that night as well yeah and so again a cast full of this time more more up and coming talent mm-hmm. and then also a few like sprinkled in people who are kind of known but mostly all young talent you got chris chalk who pops up for the opening scene who's now like perry mason was in the newsroom he's 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 the the detective that's coming in for the um for the the raid at the like the beginning raid that starts off Mm -hmm. everything um but jeremy strong again as an attorney uh real quick apparently jeremy strong was fired after his first day of shooting believe because they believed his character didn't work but she would later recast him as the attorney so i wonder if he was supposed to be a cop hmm. because they say he was fired after the first day of shooting believing his character did not work as expected and he was later cast as the attorney at the end so i wonder yeah, if strong was a cop and i don't see it um <laughs> for this but john boyega who's coming off of star wars force awakens will Poulter, who's starting to get he's on the rise at that point in time caitlin deaver on the rise at that time uh jason mitchell who was on the rise and who has now been kind of not on the rise anymore uh when you look at his kind of the headlines of his stuff so a lot anthony mackie pops up as well i mean maybe anthony mackie's in here for a good bit i was surprised by how much mackie was in here um well talk talk about kind of in between uh you got a brief two scenes with tyler james williams who's now yes you know on about elementary yeah Yeah. in between this was probably his first like oh is that chris he's he's a grown-up now (laughs) but it's it's it's, is it it's before he goes on walking dead maybe for a bit because he's on walking dead for a little bit walking dead he was on walking dead i had no idea he was on walking dead (laughs) i did not watch that far i got through like yeah halfway i didn't watch that yeah i knew he was on but yeah it's again a lot of young character actors this time and it goes back to what i said with hurt locker where she said she likes working with undiscovered like talent, like talented people you've seen and stuff, but have never been given the shot to be in something bigger. Mm-hmm. And this was kind of one of those films. And yeah, so basically what Bowl and Bigelow did, they would meet with, or they tried to meet with all the survivors that were still alive, at least the surviving protagonist. They didn't find all of them. I think Mackie's character they didn't find was a thing. Um, when talking about kind of everything, Bigelow's is kind of her her strong belief in the political power of cinema she says is rooted in her like uh, adolescence when she was protesting the vietnam war and kind of how all of a sudden it kind of stopped but how this kind of the role of artists their social function is kind of this campaign for change 
and how at that point in time there was this really beautiful blend of art and politics that was powerful and she feels that this movie would be an invitation to talk about the things that happened then but how it kind of comments on today uh when reading the script for the first time john boyega said it said john boyega said it said untitled Catherine bigelow project and that was enough for me you have to tr- <laughs> you have to trust Catherine to pick the right cast none of us were worried about who was from where so with this many times this came out in 2017 so five years have gone by since zero dark 30 a mm-hmm. big hit uh a big hit Oscar nominations she gets this movie coming out in 2017 so again it's hard to say favorite in movies like this um but what were scenes that you that kind of stuck out to you in this film i mean this one i think this this movie is a pretty pretty easy to identify three-act structure you've got yeah the the riots you've got the algiers motel Mm -hmm. and then you've got the 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 trial um it's pretty pretty cut and dry three sequences and i think the the one that's going to stay with you i I think reading reading reviews of it um i think everyone can kind of agree that the motel sequence is is scarring is is a harrowing watch and and some people come away very impressed by that and some people come away kind of disgusted by it um but it is it is ultimately uh presented almost like a horror movie which Mm -hmm. which you know depending on how you feel about kind of you know trauma and 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 violence towards african-americans being put on film which is which is something that is even since this movie has come out is has become kind of more and more of a topic of discussion is is you know is it is it a is it does is is it something that needs to be seen in order to educate people at what point Mm -hmm. does it just become almost like torture porn but um but regardless i think it is obviously very effective in in this sequence and that's what everyone who who is impressed by it or who is affected by it or, or who is ultimately turned completely off of the film by it can can agree that it is effectively done and i think that is a testament to the way that she shoots it but absolutely to every single person in in the cast it is a tense Mm -hmm. 40 45 minutes probably yeah yeah oh man it is it is a i I don't even know how to describe it it is it is a tough watch it is but it is it is gripping yeah and Again, I know they they definitely changed facts with this with the story, but there are certain like major points that occurred happened this night, like kind of the way the cops' actions specifically and everything. And I said she she interviewed some of the protagonists. I know one of the girls was on set the entire time for this movie, wow. um, or was a consultant. Um, I think they offered it to, uh, Larry Reed, who is the, 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 the singer who was in the dramatics who, mm-hmm. um, uh, I think they offered it to him. He, he declined is what it was. Um, yeah. I can see why understandably so mainly because again, he's yeah. It's like he has a certain, as you watch the movie, 
a, a, a deeper connection to it than some of the other people in it uh, is a thing. So some people it was a like say say certain characters it's a very bad night and very terrible some people lost a lot that night um but yeah again in this movie uh the the plot doesn't come in really for the for the main characters until like 45 minutes in it's still yeah. fairly late is the thing and this is not a critique i just find it fascinating that this is a continuing thing with her is that she likes setting up the world in some way and that take away that opening prologue that she has with the, uh, with the graphics and everything, but she sets up the world of like how the riots start and then just starts yes. building on the riots. She has the, has them, the, the kind of the, the part or the, the fake, the, the illegal bar that turns into protest and then people looting and rioting and protesting and how that slowly just begets more and more. And then she starts to pinpoint on the key moment. We're all building towards the key moment at the hotel, but we're seeing, we're seeing Larry Reed go to his concert with dramatics. We're seeing, um, Melvin, John Boyer's character, like, like his kind of doing multiple jobs in one day, basically working basically around the clock. You're getting Will Poulter, the, the cop character of, it's already already up on murder charges possibly yeah. like, like literally just that's, take that, that man off the streets that's, Jesus. that's what i wrote down i was just like really that's that's the move here where the guy's like yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna recommend murder charges for you but yeah just keep calm out there <laughs> like it's wild and so i i think there's certain things like that it's like it's really hard sometimes when you're you're dealing with the movie specifically this story that is about a horrible tragedy that centers around african-americans in america african-americans and i can see a lot why certain people do not think that a white person should tell the story is the thing because i think the parts that work like the the tension scene i think bigelow is amazing with the tension scenes i think some of the stuff that's a little wonky are the stuff outside of that when we're trying to get mm-hmm. the cultural aspect of it if that makes sense involved that's where i think it misses certain things you know what i mean yeah like i think the I, like example the way the trial and stuff happens i think would be done if if a black filmmaker tackles that trial i think it's done very differently like I think she's she's hitting on what a typical way to hit to do that scene. But I think it'd be done differently if a person of color is doing that that section. Yeah. That's one thing I thought of. But as you said, just the the building of that the tension scene of everything just like you don't know what's going to happen. Like it's it's done like a horror film in that section. Filmmaking wise, it's incredible. Performance wise, mm. it's incredible. Um and she's she's trying to move close to that documentary style. And so with that, I'll ask you, what were your thoughts on that opening prologue that you mentioned? Uh you know, it's it's just an I don't know. Sometimes I I I feel like that one went way too wide. Yeah. Uh, you're not, uh, you know, I, I read a, a review 
of this one that that was like it's it's a little it, it doesn't do the movie that that bigelow wanted to make justice that the not even the first prologue but kind of the second prologue like the first prologue is like we're going to tell you the entire history of uh the african-american race in america yeah and and then it's like okay well actually we're going to tell you about these riots in detroit and it's like well actually we're going to tell you about these 12 people in this one building one night in the riots and and one of the reviews said you know it just it doesn't it doesn't help the film that she wanted to make which was obviously this hyper specific incident this one night that that she starts with her scope being so big and then i think it it's it is every time it narrows in you're like oh okay well that's not exactly where you made it seem like this movie was going yeah um so yeah i don't i this is the first time you 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 said it's it's you're not saying it as a critique that that she gets 45 minutes to get into her story but this is one (laughs) where i think maybe she She could could have get this yeah I know the script's much shorter because I remember I read the script and the script was like less than a like hundred pages or so, and I was like, "This is a two hour and forty minute film." <laughs> like, I think I think there's a lot of just moments that were added or like extended in some way. Yeah, when talking about the the movie, I kept thinking of in moments that's take that takes place around the same time and tries to deal with certain aspects in a similar way was dead presidents because because mm. the move the, the beginning part was trying to do at the opening prologue is talk about the great migration and how essentially like a lot of different things how uh blacks african americans black citizens of america would were, would go to uh um urban towns basically they'd be pushed mm-hmm. to these urban towns detroit um uh up in the north essentially and uh cleveland chicago etc and and how a lot of what happens at these neighborhoods that were once diverse culturally diverse in some way w- white americans would move out and it would become different and dead presence what does so interesting or a very interesting way because we talked about this in one of our classes thomas was how like when you watch that presence it starts off where they're in the bronx and it's a very diverse community when uh, uh lorenz tate is like starting off before he goes to Vietnam when he comes back to Vietnam the entire community's changed and that's a very subtle way to show this cha- that change in some way and this tries to use like a big documentary graphic this is the one where she's really pushing documentary in moments even in the later stuff where she's showing like actual photos of the of the crime scene or actual headlines from the newspapers there she's really trying to blend documentary with narrative here and the, like, the one false moment is when she's trying to make the scope so big. Because I think, again, she's trying to make a statement on a culture in a way and history of a culture, history of, of, mm. of, of black Americans. And it's not really the movie for or she's not really the director for that is the thing. Mm hmm. And she's even said, she goes, am I the, and she kind of, well, in the interview, she's like, am I the perfect director for this? Or, or, or am I the only one that can direct this movie? She's like, no, I'm not. But she felt like she had a perspective to tell with this film. Um, Not to be completely negative with this movie, but like, again, to go on the good things, I think Boyega is amazing. I mm-hmm. think when you watch Boyega specifically in the, in this, in the uh, arrest scene where he's being interrogated, like, you see how grave an actor he is 
Yeah, absolutely. Like, and the way also to even even in the in the Algiers scenes in the hotel or in the house, like the way he can do so much without saying anything because he's always observing. He's always mm. looking at what's the way because he's i think his character is trying to find ways to help people in some way yeah i think he's trying to he's trying to be the middle ground he's got he's got a uniform and he recognizes that that uniform gives him like a little bit of clout yes with the with the white cops and with the military and and he's trying to figure out how to use that tiny tiny amount of power that that gives him to help the other black people who are being caught up in this yes in this this incident and he's trying like i say he's trying to figure out and they kind of they keep calling him like uncle tom or certain names to mm. like to like get under his skin or like you have that moment again where he he's trying to say oh let's play nice with them and then like we'll be able to not they'll like we'll be cool nothing will happen to us like it's the moment when he's doing security at the beginning of the movie and the national guard shows up he says let me go get them coffee and the guy's like what are you doing like that they don't we don't need to tell them that we're here and he's like, no, I'm gonna give him coffee because he just wants to like get in good with them, make sure they know, like, and like, because uh, I'm in the uniform, like, let's try to like erase this racial barrier. And it's that moment when he's given to the National Guard, and the guy's, like, oh, do you have some sugar? Like, trying to be, like, basically, yeah, he's basically he's being racist in the moment, and big up boy is just like, let's not push it, yeah, like, but he's he's so good, and like. He play, he plays a great a similar role uh not similar role, but he plays a role that deals with certain themes in the end that that connect and that was um the the show the part of the series did with the Steve McQueen on Amazon uh, the mm-hmm. um um the small axe series small axe yeah, yeah I think I think his was red white red white and blue yeah red white and blue where he plays a a police officer in London. Uh, who's attempting to kind of like reform the police and goes on trial and has like this trial and stuff, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but yeah, he's amazing. Again, what he can do with like just facial expressions, like the thoughts that you can see without him saying anything, it's incredible. And like, it's someone that I hope gets more roles who is not just tied down that he was in star Wars in some way. <laughs> like, I yeah. think he's an incredible actor who it's like, I, when we, when we read that, um, that unpublished possible unpu- un- unproduced script of the other star Wars film. And there's a scene that I was like, boy, I would have killed this. He, yep. cause he had been amazing. And we've never really seen him. And, and that series really showcase how talented of an actor he is. Um, but yeah. And also in terms of actor, I think Anthony Mackie's really great in this for yeah, how you know, he, that's he's, a, he's really great in this movie that that is a that is a character actor role and mm-hmm. props to props to them for identifying like hey Mackie would be really good in this yeah props to Mackie for agreeing to do it at this point in his career but you know ultimately he's a smaller character within this uh within this story but but it is a, a really it's a me- really meaty role uh, yeah. you know you're talking you were talking about dead presence earlier that's that question that's raised by dead presence has been raised by by uh it's a really interesting kind of question is you know what is what is coming home for for a black veteran mm-hmm. you know coming back to a, a world that you saved that now doesn't doesn't want you there and and all of that is kind of wrapped up in a very compact but powerful performance from Mackie. Yeah. And it's it's right in between Captain America Civil War and Avengers Infinity War. 
It's right in yeah. the middle of that. Um, <laughs> and he and he's really good. I think it it's such an interesting change in dynamic. As soon as I saw, I, I didn't realize that that um, that uh, Jack Rayner was in this. Mm-hmm. And to see him and Will Poulter, it's like the exact swapping of their characters from uh, from Midsummer, mm-hmm. where like he's kind of the the bumbling idiot and will poulter is the 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 evil brains yeah but um i this might be be stepping on on some of your trivia but but one thing i'd always associated with this movie is that this is what made will poulter back out of of it that's what i had because i'm not sure i couldn't like find anything on it but i that's why i always heard i i feel like i heard that somewhere and maybe yeah, it was it for might you. have been for me. Yeah, it might have been for you. But I, I do, um, I do remember him saying when someone asked me, "Oh, how do you like find a trait in this character like to to sympathize or empathize with?" He's like, "You don't." He's yeah. like, "It's pure. It's a pure evil character." And I, I can see that. I can see that now. With. When yeah, when when you know when I when I was hearing and they were like, "Oh, he just he had just played that cop in Detroit and then he he couldn't he just didn't have the he just didn't have it in him to be." The child eating clown right afterwards, and I was like, oh, okay, but like this guy is a monster. Like yeah. he is the the worst of the of the worst, and I can one hundred percent see how much that would take out of you to yeah. to have to play this to play this role. I mean, that moment when like I think it's when when they're upstairs when he's, or when he's with the girls, and he has this like kind of like weird smile, like in the middle of everything i was like this dude's mm-hmm. this, this dude is and he, he's such a good casting decision yeah. for this because he looks like he's 12 i mean that's the <laughs> yes. thing with will poulter is he still kind of looks like it and he's he's someone that i think all of us were introduced to as a kid mm-hmm. as a child actor in the first place so so it absolutely drives home this point that like these these piece of shit cops on an ego trip were 18 19 like yeah and and they were just kind of handed the world and again you gotta realize that the kid the kids that they're in this motel most of them are like 17 19 years old mm-hmm. is the uh, like anthony Mackie's character is, is technically the oldest and he's like 24 i think is what it was like mm-hmm. it's it's insane. Like the, these these characters a lot of them still living is the thing mm-hmm. after this um and yeah it's but yeah, the, the cop stuff, it's so, yeah, it's so, it's horrifying is the thing. And the way, and also just kind of the, the this is the sad part of this is that in this period, you, you have these people in the moment who recognize how horrible it is. And they're just like, this is a police situation now. Yeah. Like you have yeah, the, you got the, 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 the state, state police roll up and they're just like, let's not get involved. The national guard guy probably tells himself, oh, I did a good thing. I, I helped that one guy get out the yeah. back door but like you also stood there for everything else that happened that night yeah and took part in the intimidation stuff like you you took him into one one room uh and that that's like why why um in the courtroom scene where mackie mackie's character is like oh, i was a national guardsman because mm. they thought the national guard took one of the guys into a room but it was part of an intimidation tactic is what it was um but yeah, the middle middle section is incredible, um, and she again she has great she has great direction. No matter what it is, I think she has great direction in these kind of scenes. Um, anything else you want to say about Detroit with that? I don't think so. I, I absolutely understand. I remember kind of the 
the narrative about this movie when it came out was like it was very because everybody was like this movie's it's Catherine Bigelow she's coming off a huge hot streak it's getting great reviews why isn't anyone seeing this movie and it's and everyone was kind of like read the reviews everyone who saw it is just everyone even the people who liked it are like i feel terrible after watching that movie yeah. like it is it is a grueling watch and and it it, it i did it led to several think pieces that were mm-hmm. like you know uh at what point should we expect financial success from a movie like this it, yeah. it, sh- it should it ever be expected um but yeah i i, I understand now and I, i'm i'm glad that i watched it i will probably never watch this movie again and that is uh that's what I take away from it. This, this, it, my, is, this, it is. this is my second time watching it. <laughs> wow. Well, we had I had to do it for the show, Thomas. I had to do it for the show. Mm-hmm. It's, been, it's been it's been six years. Others. Uh-huh. No. Sometimes when a black guy is put in a position of authority, other black guys they like to single you out. Okay, because I'm not supposed to tell them what to do. When we have these conversations, we do them in stages. Okay. Stage one, witnesses. Stage two, suspects. What stage are we in? You don't know what stage we're in? No, could you specify for me? Yeah, we're in stage two. You're a suspect. Yeah, so this movie, she basically developed since uh, Point Break, but also she did a lot in Hurt Locker, was that she had three or four cameras running at the entire time during this movie. Uh, keeping constant motion around the actors, these cameras. Uh, Bigelow and her team preferred to light the entire set to give the performance more flexibility, allowing them to move around. She wouldn't block a scene for the camera. Um, By plotting out shots, she would just basically shoot it several times and then just kind of shoot it on the fly, it seems. Um, She goes, after two or three takes, she would move on. Which, in a way, with that middle section in the hotel... I wouldn't want to put actors through that no, for that long not. for that long. So, so when the film came out, it was released July 28th, 2017. Now one big kind of critique of the movie being released in July. Also, I think it was limited in July 28th wide on the first week of August is this is not really a summer movie. No. No, this is a award season movie. This is an award season movie that got released way too early. And this reminds me of the K-19 Widowmaker uh, kind of debacle as they released mm-hmm. that in the middle of the summer when that was should have been a fall release. And because of that, like K-19 Widowmaker, this was a box office failure, only making $26 million on a $40 million budget. And... It received praise. Boya gets praise. Poulter gets praise. Algie Smith, who plays Larry Reed, gets gets praise as well. Who's who's, I think, fantastic uh, in the role of the dramatic singer. And mm. people loved it. And some people saying it was it was better than her previous film with with Zero Dark Thirty. And but a lot of people came into question came to question why a white filmmaker was telling the story of a a, a more African-American based story. So I think because of that, it did well with African-American audiences when it came out, but it it really kind of lost traction after that. Had a high cinema score at A-, A minus, 
but just something about it, I think because it was the summer, it didn't latch on. And very quickly, while the reviews were good, it didn't have as much staying power because it, it was released in a very crowded year, basically. So, yeah. And and then also, too, it came into question a lot. Some, some of the historical accuracy came into question. Um, mm. Melvin Dismukes, who, um, who was... One who was who was John Boyega's character. He said that ninety nine point five percent of the film was accurate to what happened at the motel in the city that night. Bigelow and Boyle do say, however, they do use instances of pure screenwriting. It even says in the credits, the first thing is like we had to make stuff up, basically, <laughs> uh, based off our research. Um, so yeah, so yeah, so with that, that was in twenty seventeen, and Catherine Bigelow hasn't made a film since which is somewhat wild mm-hmm. Oscar winning director beloved by critics. And I think in a time where how to, how to put this, it's like for there's been a rise of female filmmakers in that period of time, not saying it's way better, but there's been a rise and you would think someone like Bigelow would be even though she's like she doesn't like having that moniker of being a female filmmaker would have somehow been like contacted about several things like hey we want to make a movie with you because you're Catherine Bigelow I know mm. right now she is supposed to be making a movie with Netflix um, called Aurora with David Cope writing the script that was announced in March 2022 it sounds like Mark Bull and her have kind of, Mark Bull and her have kind of ended their partnership i think he's wanting to direct his own stuff now um i think she's mostly been shooting commercials in this period of time and not really shooting movies and it somewhat makes sense i know she's talked about previously that she takes a while to make movies because she likes to basically be involved from the very beginning and she likes to be very particular about what movies she picks so that's why but it is kind of sad to see that in the past six years we haven't seen a movie from her and not or even like a tv show of some kind i think she would it'd be wild to see her do like a a six mini six part mini series of some kind mm-hmm. so yeah but anything else you want to say about these movies before moving on to our next kind of steps i don't think so so we briefly talked about certain projects we were supposed to do we talked about triple frontier uh, we talked about, I mentioned earlier, A Passion of Joan of Arc movie. I mentioned a The Battle of uh, Torabora. Uh, at one point, she was attached to stuff with Oliver Stone and Walter Hill. Um, I know currently she was supposed to direct a nonfiction book, The True American Murder and Mercy in Texas, starring Tom Hardy. That was announced in 2014, and not much has happened since then. Um, at one point, when she left triple frontier, she was going to go make a movie about Bo Bergdahl, who was a, uh, an army soldier held captive by the Taliban and tw- from 20, 2009, to 2014. So for five years. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she, that fell through and she made D- Detroit instead. So a lot of starts and stops with hers. It feels like where she's gestating on it for a while and then money comes comes through finally and she makes it um but yeah i hopefully oh at one point i read this rumor it was mentioned in the book that i've been reading where they asked her like hey like uh 
any truth to you doing the next Twilight movie? And she's like, I'm not discussing that. So it makes <laughs> me think they offered her, I think Twilight Eclipse is what it was. And she said no. Um, but yeah, so let's move on to stats. So real quick, on Letterboxd for our Catherine Bigelow list, um, mm-hmm. what do you think are her top three rated films? Uh, Hurt Locker. Hurt Locker is number three. Okay. And the top two, by the way, it's a tie. Top two is a tie. Actually, actually, the top three are all all the same, all the same uh, rating. All three have a three point seven. Yeah, top three all have three point seven. Oh wow. Okay. Uh, Zero Dark Thirty. Nope. Uh, Near Dark. Nope. Uh. Three point seven. Uh. Point Break. Point Break number two. Or it's yeah, it's tied, tied for one. You watched Detroit? it for Detroit? No, you watched it for the first time this month. Strange days. Strange days at three point oh, seven. Okay. <laughs> Top three, all of them. Okay, bottom three, average rating. Weight of water. Bottom. At a okay. two, at a two point three. Okay. Uh, Loveless. Loveless is, I think, tied for next at three point Yeah. And K nineteen. Yep, that's also three point Okay. All right. Um, let me see if, if there's a popularity. Um, popularity. The bottom is the same. I will say that one of them, the top three, has changed out. Uh. That becomes Hurt Locker. No, that becomes Zero Dark Thirty. Correct. And and no Strange Days. No Strange Days in the top three. Uh, who gotcha. has the most appearances in, in a Catherine Bigelow movie, Thomas? By my calculations, it's this person. Uh, most appearances. She has a lot of twos, I will say. But she has yeah, one. Yeah, one, I can think one, of a lot of people. One three I saw. Okay, I can think of a lot of twos, but three. And it was three in a row. We give and we give one more hint. Uh, he's barely in two of them, but he's a big part of one of them. Ray Fiennes. No. Yeah. Tom Sizemore. Oh yes, yes, yes. Because okay. he's he's the he's the criminal or he's the the robber in Blue Steel. He he's is the, the undercover undercover point in break. Point Break, and then he is the best friend in Strange Days. All right, Thomas, the big the big question. We have a lot of questions here, but the big question. Let's rank these movies of Catherine Bigelow. So we go from bottom to top is what it is? Sure. Yep. Okay. I don't think my bottom three are going to be any surprises because it lines up perfectly with Letterboxd. I, I kind of moved one. I, I'm going to switch this real quick. I'm going to switch this real quick. Okay. Now, now, now we're doing Okay bottom weight of water weight of water is my bottom as well loveless that's my next one as well k19 widowmaker my next one is blue steel mm, okay okay i had blue steel next that's and i have k19 widowmaker next that's okay. like we're, we're, i knew we we're gonna be in the, in the in those in that kind of four right there yeah then okay. uh then detroit detroit's my next one uh then near dark near dark is my next one as well 
uh, than Strange Days. No, I have zero Dark Thirty there. Oh wow! I <laughs> objectively, I think Zero Dark Thirty is a, like Strange Days. Okay, I, okay, it, yes, yes. I would, I would agree with you. I would agree with you on yeah. that. Yes, I would agree with you on that. Zero objectively, Zero Dark Thirty is better film than Strange Days. But which one did I like mean, more? That doesn't mean Strange Days does not hold a special place in my heart. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. So then I had Zero Dark Thirty at three. I have Hurt Locker, uh, Hurt Locker at three. All right. I had Point Break at two. I have Strange Days at two. Wow. Okay. I had Hurt Locker at one. I have Point Break at one. Okay. All right. Yeah. And let me tell you right now, it was hard not to put Strange Days number one. It was very <laughs> I love hard. That. I love that. It was very hard. But I was like, I've only seen it once. I don't want to. and Because th- those top three are very hard to choose from, I will say. Hurt Locker, mm-hmm. Strange Days, and Point Break. But I was, I was, I was like, is Strange Days better than Point Break? I don't know if it is, but do I like it more? I think I might like it a tad, but I, was like, I need to see it one more time because if it holds yeah. up, then I would bump it. But right now, mm-hmm. that's the list. All right, I'm nice. happy with that. We're, we're, I mean, we're close enough. It's only ten films, mm-hmm. so. All right, last few questions here. Final, final director questions for Catherine Bigelow. Is Catherine Bigelow an auteur? Uh. That's that's an interesting one because she is up. She's obviously someone who works with, likes to work with kind of the same writers, uh, likes to work with the same, uh, likes to work with the same actors. Kind of dwells on some of the same themes, but she isn't someone who seems that overly concerned with like creating a visual style for herself. I agree, which I think is 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 part of kind of being the auteur. She's she's she seems to lack a little bit of the ego that I think it requires to be an auteur, which I would kind of view as a good thing. Yeah. Um, but I think she's, I think she's right there on the cusp. I think she would probably say that she wasn't, which I think would kind of factor in. It's kind of like the sorting hat, you know, it's like, yeah. I think, I think if you're like, I am an auteur, I think that's absolutely going to be part of it. <laughs> like, <laughs> I am the author of my films, but, um, but she's obviously someone who like really puts a lot of or put a lot of emphasis on her collaboration with Mark Bowl. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think it ultimately leads to this really interesting uh, portfolio for her, mm-hmm. and and it and um, something that I'm absolutely glad that we sat and watched all the way through. But I don't know if I would go all the way to to list her as an auteur. Yeah, and the the irony of that situation is he was actually taught by Andrew Saris about the auteur theory. Probably <laughs> one of go. the few people that could say that that are a big filmmaker nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I I don't know. I think you, you brought up a good point. Is that she when I'm just she collaborates with a lot of writers like very heavily. She did two movies with Eric uh, Eric Red with um Near Dark and Blue Steel. She did two with Christopher Kyle with The Weight of Water and Canty the Widowmaker. She did. Uh, three with Mark Bowl. She did basically one with James Cameron slash two with James Cameron. And there's not credited writer on um, Point Break. So she's worked heavily with writers throughout. So I think she's someone like she has said before, she is involved from beginning to end. In some cases, should be getting producer credit when she doesn't get producer credit. But... Mm. I don't know if you can state 
yeah, that she is an auteur fully. I think right. she is an incredible director, but I don't know. It, it's it's really tough. I think certain themes are popping up enough where, but that's a, a director can have running themes and not be an auteur. I think what right. they're an auteur. Um, I think she has a great voice is the thing and has mm-hmm. a great eye. And I think she allows the, the film to, to whatever visual style she brings to a film, she lets the film call for it is kind of what I think. Yes. And I think especially kind of the, the movement that she's pay- taken in her past three films when everybody kind of throws out the like documentary like and all that kind of stuff. I think she she has taken a lot of effort in her past three films to to remove her her paintbrush as much as possible. You her, know, the artifice is what it is. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And I think that is that in itself is a is a is a statement piece into I'm, I'm trying to create story. I'm trying to create truth, yeah. but not necessarily. I'm trying to create my my stamp on, on yeah, the world yeah. or my stamp on this film or whatever. You yeah. know, that's it, it. It it is almost the absence of that yeah. in, in what her style has yeah. has turned into in the, in the last couple of films. She doesn't view every film as a building block to her legacy it feel it feels yeah. like in my end she she wants to make movies the way she wants to make movies um and try new things so with all that what are her running themes i think i think we've definitely come away with with masculinity as as a as a theme and i think that's Observa- the, I think the, observation of masculinity is the observation maybe. of masculinity yeah absolutely kind of the outsider observation of masculinity which mm-hmm. is why i think zero dark 30 is such an interesting uh entry into her into mm-hmm. her catalog as well because it is it is the only film that really deals with a female character kind of viewing masculinity in the way that she's been viewing it through her camera lens yeah um and then it doesn't come in i guess with with maya a little bit uh in zero dark 30 but but we've talked about through many of her films she's kind of got that that outsider mm-hmm. or a rebel or somebody somebody who lives outside the rules and and is not going to to obey the status quo yeah uh it, it was it was a lot more apparent earlier on with with the loveless and, yeah. and near dark and point break that that's kind of her especially those three and and I, I mean even strange days with kind of the idea that that he has he is a cop but but he's he's the cops aren't going to be able to solve this he has to be down in the in the filth and the the people of the street to to get this done mm-hmm. um yeah i have i have two more things if you if you're if you're, mm-hmm. fin- if you're finished i, don't want, I, don't I think so in. okay I think that's what i got two things that kind of i talked about uh, kind of found out just last minute like the idea of the loop and how a lot of her characters mm-hmm. are stuck in these loops. And by the end, they either break out of them in some way or they stay in them. And if it's near mm-hmm. dark, they break out of them. If it's James and the Hurt Locker, he stays in it. Um, so that was kind of a big thing that I just I thought was interesting. Um, that's popular in a lot of her films. One that I, I don't want to take credit for, it was it was Paul Hond, I believe is his name, in, a, in an article in the book that I'm reading shoot shoot bang bang is the article he said her films are about heroes who are who are seduced by things that might kill them yeah and if you look at a lot of her movies that kind of fits perfectly near dark is that way 
I think Blue Steel is that way. I think um, Strange Days is that way. I think The Hurt Locker is definitely that way. Point Break is that way. Um, mm-hmm. Kind of saying how like they use the quote like in Point Break of how like if you want the ultimate, you gotta be willing to pay the ultimate price type thing is the 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 phrase that's used by uh by Bodie. But even even Zero Dark Thirty is that too. Um, that's why I think Detroit is such a very interesting movie uh and the whole catalog because it kind of goes against everything we've said in terms of themes mm-hmm. for the most part there's not really a loop there's no hero seduced by things that might kill them there's no. the, the, death is a thing for sure but like not the themes and the way it's portrayed in this other 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 films so so yeah um what genres does bigelow work within a variety yeah, that's she. I think she's always. As she said earlier she loves taking a genre and subverting it to the point of its breaking point or to its breaking point, and then bring it back to something you know and enjoy. So yeah, I think that's we got vampire, we got western, we got cop drama, we got noir film, we got tech, the sci-fi, we got um pure or like uh puritan type movies i don't i don't know with with weight of water with that storyline war films uh yeah it's a variety and then i guess last question thomas that what did you learn overall this month because this was your pick this month was Catherine bigelow was your pick for this month so what did you learn this month i i'd always been curious i think the most interesting thing was to watch her evolve into Mm-hmm. This kind of documentarian style that she is now, this this very pragmatic storyteller style, because I had seen Point Break, obviously, many times. I'd seen Near Dark, very, very kind of stylistic 80s action style to it. Mm-hmm. And I had and then that kind of middle point of her career was always kind of a blind spot to me. And I was just always like, how did we get? For me, I know this Catherine Bigelow and I know this Catherine Bigelow and I don't see the strings. Yeah. Uh, so so to explore in between, you, you start to see that unfold. And then you also get Strange Days, which I think is just, you know, the absolute <laughs> gift of, of this month was was getting to watch yeah. Strange Days. So um, that's that's been my favorite part. <laughs> um, but uh, but no, it's it's been so interesting. I think this is one of the. Cause, cause sometimes, you know, you see when we do these months, you watch somebody's first movie and their first movie. I've talked about this before. Is like, I think it's really interesting when a director's first movie is just like them just like exploded onto the screen. And then it's all about watching them hone it in. Mm-hmm. And it, and, and that's not necessarily, it, this one is much more about her kind of feeling out the best way for her to tell a story like we said she was someone who already had the artistry of it down yeah when she started she was a visual artist it was the storytelling that was always what was developing for her and so to see her eventually get to the point where she she's at now which is this super effective Mm -hmm. storyteller is is such an interesting evolution i agree i agree yeah i think coming out of this like you said it was like I know the near dark. I know the point break and it's a big jump. And then it's like, okay, how do we get from those movies where it's genre pieces to war films ripped from the, ripped from the headlines. Mm -hmm. And it's a very interesting evolution because I almost wonder if she doesn't fully become her until 
Widowmaker and the Hurt Locker. Mm-hmm. Because I think for the rest of those earlier ones, I think she's because it's like Cameron kind of said it is that she had to like kind of break up with Cameron to go out on her own to where she wasn't always seen in his shadow. And I think that made it to mm-hmm. where she she had to be involved in everything from the beginning. And it was her voice throughout the entire thing. So I think from Way to Water to Canteen Widowmaker to where it really comes into play with Hurt Locker. She's present throughout all the ones before, but I think the Hurt Locker is where she really has mastered how to show her true voice like from beginning to end. Yeah. And how to ma- how to master the research element, how to master the 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 kind of um how to be spontaneous in it as well with how she shoots and everything. Um that's all I think really just hits a peak at Hurt Locker. So maybe Hurt Locker is number one for me. I don't know, Thomas. Maybe I should move it. I, I'm I'm not sure. I'm not sure. <laughs> um but yeah, I think that's it on Catherine Bigelow. If you've been following along this month, I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh I I've some of you have reached out to me and I'm happy to hear that of what movies you discovered or revisited because we've talked about it and I hope you continue to do that. I hope you continue to, to push her films out there into the world because I think they're they're films that are worth discussing and worth admiring and appreciating and so i hope we all continue to do that um so next month so thomas is taking a little bit of a break next month he's he's a busy guy busy guy uh so just because of scheduling he will not be with us on the main show but he'll be with us on the patreon from the patreon episodes next month uh but next month i'll be joined by david for most of the month we'll be talking monster movies next month so David, for the first first episode of the month, we're talking about Frankenstein. We're talking about American Were- Werewolf in London at one point. Thomas and I will go talk about Little Shop of Horrors on the, on the uh, Patreon is the plan right now. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So it's going to be a fun, fun month. So get ready. It's Monster May, I guess you could say. That's that's the, that's the slogan. <laughs> Monster May. Um, but, yeah, so that's all we have for you in this episode. If you haven't, or if you need to contact us for some reason, like send us a, shoot us an email. Tell us what you're loving about the show. Tell us if you love the Catherine Bigelow stuff. Contact us at gmail.com. You can also send us recommendations, and we'll maybe try to put them on the show at some point or on a Patreon. Um, also, be sure to join our Patreon. Um, it's a $1, $5, $10 subscription uh, levels is what it is. And you can get new episodes, uh, newsletters, a lot of new content. We want to keep pushing that out as much as possible. And thank you to everyone who's been involved in doing all that. Uh, Dave and I talked about the Lost Boys recently in comparison to uh, Near Dark with Kevin Bigelow. And we're talking about Argo on the next episode to in comparison to Near Dark 30. So stay tuned for that. Be sure to subscribe to the Nation Podcast. Uh, we're available on all your podcast platforms. If you haven't done it, I don't know why you haven't done it. You need to do it as soon as possible. And if and also too, to we really appreciate if you write us a review on your preferred podcast platform. Not, I don't have anything Catherine Bigelow themed for, for <laughs> the the entire month, but uh, but yeah, it'd be uh, we love we love reading your reviews. Yeah. So let's hear what you think. When Thomas is like traveling a little bit, he just I want him to be able to read the reviews on his phone just as he's traveling. Yeah. <laughs> Give him a lot of reading material with the reviews talking about what you thought of us on Catherine Bigelow Month or just what you thought about us when we talked about, you know, Clue or something. I don't know. Um, whatever you're listening to right now, we hope you enjoy it. Um, also, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Letterboxd, all those great places. Uh, Thomas, as always, thank you for joining me. 
Thank you for having me. And thank you all for listening. We hope to listen to more episodes soon. Bye.